I'm going to do the plagues today. So I'm just a quick word. I want to encourage you. Paul encouraged us last week, and I think the week before, to read around it. I don't, there's no judgment on you if you've not, if you've not read around it, but it's just there's such good stories. So we're going to, I'm going to dip into two of them, really. We're going to look at two of the plagues. I've got the whole cast of the plagues to do. So please, um, I don't know what your plans are for your life groups. I'm not, I don't think there's life groups on this week. So you've got Tuesday night free. You could, you could bomb through Exodus, or you could bomb through the plagues. There's just so cleverly written. You could, you know, if you've got kids, you could sit down and read them with your kids because there's like this element, pantomime, bad guy. There's really obvious good guys. There's such a solid sort of plot. So just spend time uh, reading through them if you get chance to this week. Probably only going to talk about two. It's been a really pleasant story so far. That's my observations. Perhaps week one was tricky, but the, the way that God has worked you know, there's the story of Moses in the bulrushes. Wasn't that, isn't that just the nicest story in the world? This baby floats into Pharaoh's daughter's arms almost and is blessed and looked after. We've got Moses, a man who is sort of troubled by his own identity and, and, and sort of gets, gets to sort of re-find himself and rediscover himself. And then he's out in the desert and he finds love. Don't know if that appeals that appeals to anybody else in the room, but I really, you know, I like I like I like it when people find love. It's been a really nice story. As I've been reading through it in the week, it's such a lovely story. A man who hears from God. How amazing was that? God wants us to be in his presence. And Moses draws near to God. A man who gets this word from God. And the word is going to help him reconnect with his identity. It's going to help him reconnect with his roots. And he's going to be the savior of these people. That's going to be the storyline. Isn't that like just the nicest storyline? And guess our minds would kind of go to the fact, maybe our 21st century mindset would be, well, a, a nice way for this sort of storyline to carry on would be that Moses is the undercover expert that sneaks back into Egypt and sort of under darkness because he knows his way around Egypt fantastically well. That could be the storyline. He knows Egypt, he's lived there, so he can sneak in and he can redeem the people and they can sneak out in the whisper of an eye. That would be a nice story. That's a story we could... We'd think, yeah, that's, I could see how you could work in that, God. Or maybe Moses comes with an anti-slavery um, motion. He's written a paper on, on the evils of slavery, and, and he's, got, he's maybe got some world leaders to sign a document or sign a petition to say, yeah, we need to ban slavery. So he goes in to see Pharaoh, and he presents him with this motion. And Pharaoh goes, you know what? Over a latte, something like that. Maybe they didn't have lattes then. Pharaoh goes, you know, I, see, I see the error of my ways. I have been foolish. We shouldn't have kept these Hebrew people slaves all these time. I change my mind. And you, maybe, maybe that's, I think, if we were to write this story now with our 21st century mindset, we'd want that kind of outcome. We'd want God to be something like that. That would be a story we could go along with. But that's not what happens in this story. Hold on to your seats for a second. What happens in this story? Because I've really struggled with this this week. I, I was writing a bit of the sermon in the cafe on Friday, and I had some of the escape staff looking over my shoulder, reading through the plagues with me seeing what God's doing. And they were like going, man, this is brutal. This is brutal stuff. God gives these people an ultimatum, and when it's not heeded, he decimates this land. These Egyptians, who aren't great, they're bad people, but God comes in and decimates the land. He starves the people. He destroys their economy. Everybody gets sick, and the children, lots of the children die. This is what God does. Why do we have a story like that in the Bible? I'm sure that's what the escape staff were thinking as they read over my shoulder and I tried to explain it to them. Well, we're going to go with three points. 
So tune in for these three points. These are like coat hanger points, things to hang all your thoughts on, take-home points. It's more for me than it is for you, I guess. In some respects, it means that if I say these three things now, I'm done. You've got all the three points, so hang on to these. So we're going to see, um, we're going to see what people are like. There's two points about what people are like, one point about what God's like. We're going to see what people are like. The first one we're going to see is that sin has messed us up more than we know. Sin has messed us up more than we know, and our view of God is blurred, and it needs to be reset. So sin has messed us up more than we know. Sin wants to, you know, we have this idea of sin. It's just this little thing that we do wrong, this little sidestep we take. We're quickly back on the road. That's not what sin does. That's not what sin's trying to do. Sin wants you to see God miles away and think, man, there's just no way I can ever get back there. God is miles away from me. Now, I am so tangled up in sin. That's what sin is. So sin has messed us up more than we are conscious of, more than we would want to admit, and it means that seeing God, 21st century Cass, is tricky, and it means we need a reset. That's one of the things this story is going to tell us. Second point, our hearts are harder than we know. Yeah. Our hearts are harder than we know. Even when we experience God's power, we trust ourselves more. Our hearts are harder than we know. We'd never, we don't want to say that, do we? We want to be soft-hearted. We want to have good hearts. Our hearts are harder than we know. The Bible's going to show us that. And the third thing we're going to see is we're going to see what a great God we have. Point number three, this is what God is like. God is more awesome than we know, and his power will be seen in unlikely places. So those are the those are the three things. It'll be over before you know it. Hang on, get all the three points. We're going to read some text. We're going to dip into the first plague. So if you've got a device, you don't need it because it's going to be on the screen. I don't need to say that um, behind us. So we're going to read through now. Well, there's, there's debate. It's, 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 it's when Moses puts his staff into the Nile. Is it a sign or is it a plague? Come and tell me afterwards. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go. First point, let my people go. Bit perhaps that we forget, so that they may worship me in the wilderness, but until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, hang on to this verse, by this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will sink. Stink. <laughs> the, river will, the river will stink. It won't sink. That would be a well, God can do that, but it's not what he's going to do. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. A horrible thing to get blood everywhere, isn't it? That's careful language. I think the author used wants us to really see that there's blood everywhere. We had that. When we looked at royal blood, there was blood everywhere. There was blood everywhere in my kitchen when I cut my foot open the other week and I ran around like a wimp and created a mess. There was blood everywhere there and there's blood everywhere here. So I want, I want us to try and picture, if we can, this scene. 
for a second, because I think, I think the, the way that the author writes it, he wants us to picture this scene. There, it's, like, it's almost like a spaghetti western. Go out to see Pharaoh in the morning. It's a bit like pistols at dawn sort of idea. So you've got to try and imagine Pharaoh there in all his grandiose splendor. I don't know what he's doing going out. I tried to dig around, find out what he's doing going out in the morning onto the water. Just, I just think to look around his glorious kingdom, maybe have a little wash. He's got servants waiting on him left, right, and center. He's just, he's just there resplendent, and Moses goes out to meet him with his staff, with a stick. I want you to hold on to that thought. He comes armed with a stick. What's God doing sending a man out with a stick? Surely he needs more than that. This is the picture, and blood is everywhere. First thing I think about when I see a story like this, and I think this is because I'm a parent, I think this is what happens when you've got kids and you tidy up all the time. All I can think about, I see all this blood everywhere, I think, who's going to clean up all the mess? Is ever, I mean, that's, it's such a lame thing to think, isn't it? But that's, that's what I think. I was watching um, Avengers Civil War with my kids the other night, and it's this great epic story of good and evil. It's an awesome story, and all I can think is, Who's going, to, who's going to tidy all that up? That's what I'm thinking. How lame is that? What's happened to me? Pushing on 40, and I'm watching this amazing film, and all I can think is, who's going to tidy up all the mess? Can't the big, handsome fella with the hammer just talk to the good-looking fella with the leather trousers on, and can they not just you know, have a cup of coffee together and sit down and resolve all this? Then New York City could stay the same. Nobody's going to have to clean all that up. Could that not be the way forward with this? Why all the mess? Why do we have this story in the Bible where the river is soaked with blood? First question. Why is there so much mess? Second question. So why is all the mess? Second question, why the Nile? Why does it, it all starts in the Nile. Why does it start in the Nile? What's so special about the Nile? I think in, in, in the day and age that we live in, we're a bit, or where, perhaps where we live, we're a bit indifferent to rivers. If I asked you to name the rivers around about here, you could probably name the rivers. And maybe if you were from somewhere whose river was really awesome, like Liverpool or Newcastle, it, it might, you might even have a song about it. It might mean a little bit more to you. But we're a bit passive about our rivers in Cass. We're, we're in, we take them or leave them. It's nice that they're there. In Egypt, they loved the Nile. They loved the Nile. It was a drug. They worshipped the Nile. It was the basis for just about all of the success that they had. I did, I did a bit of digging around, and so don't hammer me afterwards if my stats are wrong. I'm just trying to make a point. It says that 95% of the water that Egypt has now comes from the Nile. 95% of the water comes down the River Nile. So they need this water supply. So they need it now. So back in the day, they needed this water, water supply, and it was their, it was their life source. So, so the Nile, you don't know anything about the Nile, it come, I think it still does this today. It comes in and it floods and it deposits what they call silt, which is something I'd never heard of before, but it kind of just reinvigorates the land. It makes it perfect for farming. So it just, it takes all the hassle away, just makes this, this part of the world just a beautiful place to be. And the Egyptians loved this. And they, you know, this was lifeblood to them. And they, they loved it so much that they started to worship it. They created a god. And you do a bit more digging around, and it's odd. It's called Happy, H-A-P-I. Interesting, isn't it, that it's called, I mean, it's not supposed to be our sense of the word happy, but I think it's interesting that their God is called Happy. He is, and, and they, you know, they party, they celebrate him. He is the thing that brings life to them, and they celebrate this God happy. And what we see happening is that they, I guess from God's perspective, 
they forget the creator. They can't see the creator. And they start worshipping the creation. That's what starts to happen here. See, the plagues are not just random, annoying acts that allow Israel to become free. I always, whenever, whenever, I've, whenever I've read the plagues in the past, I might even say almost up until the you know, last couple of years, I've read about the plagues, I just thought God was trying to annoy them to death just so they let them go. You know, like when you're a kid, you just think, I'm just going to mither my brother or my mom. If I just pester them enough, you know, when you go to your parents, just nag them, and eventually they go, do you know what? You can have a sweet. I don't, it's not worth the effort. I think I thought with the plagues like that, God, God just pesters these people and he mithers these people. That's not what happens. These are not random occurrences. God is making a specific point. These are actions that he will make known so that people will know that he is the Lord, their God. God says to them, I'm going to take away your gods. I'm going to take away this thing that you've started to wrestle with. I'm going to take away this thing that you've started to, that you've, that you've made all your life about, that you've put all your energies into, that you spend all your time celebrating. I'm going to take that away. I'm going to make that blood, and then I'm going to see what you do about life after that. You're going to have to wrestle with the fact that something bigger is going on. You see, making our own gods is what we do. Egypt's mistake is soon replicated by the Hebrew people. Skip on a few pages in your Bible. The Hebrew people are all watching in on what's happening. God's teaching these people a lesson. A few chapters down the line, Moses disappears at Mount Sinai to come back down with a few instructions from God, and the people are doing what? They are making their own gods, making our own idols. That's what human beings do best. And this story flags up what happens when you make your own idols, when you make the creation the thing that you worship instead of the creator. Think about it from our perspective, from where we're at, the day and age that we live in. These, these people got distracted by a good water supply. That's all they had. It was a good water supply, and they went God blind on the back of a good water supply. Think about what we've got at our fingertips right now. I was at my sister's house on Friday night, and my brother-in-law shouted across the room, and you're probably all here already. He shouted, Alexia, play me some mood music. I'm in a bad, something like that. I'm in a bad mood. Just play me something to just give me a slight lift. And he's like laid back on the couch. He's not moved, not moved at all. And then on comes some 90s nostalgia to try and cheer him up because Alexia knows what Dave likes. Do you know what I mean? And just, just this power that we've got now, we can just kick back and shout stuff. We could, sh- we're going to, I mean, I don't, I don't know if this happens, but I wanted to sort of shout, Alexia, bring me a selection of fine wines from Eastern Africa right now, just to see if that could happen. But I think we're probably, that could probably happen. If you get it all set up right, that could happen. The power that is at our fingertips just at the moment is just unbelievable. We've got phone apps that can make us, and we're all thankful for this, that make us look better. Just just, uh, filter, oh, you take a look at yourself, man. I I just need a bit of a brush up there on the filter. You know, how much power do we have? We can disappear into any virtual world that we want, into a dating virtual world, into a porn virtual world, into a chat virtual world, into a gaming virtual world. We can just lose ourselves. The potential for us to make gods of stuff right now is just unbelievable. These people had a good water supply. It's all they had. 
the Nile, made the ground good for growing crops, and they went completely nuts and God blind. Imagine how much more, having seen how God needed to speak to them, God would want to speak to us and arrest us and interrupt us. I'm trying to think about the things that we make gods of. So maybe, maybe you're pretty awesome with that. Maybe you don't lose yourself in the mobile phone. Maybe you've got it nailed down. You've put safety, you know, you've got restrictions on it and you're sorting yourself out. But there's so many areas. I've just scribbled a few down. I want you to let these roll around in your head. Kids, partners, careers, health, looks, time, Facebook profile. These, these are here. They're all God's creations in some senses. They're all God's gifts to us. Good things, things to be enjoyed, to be maximized even. And yet, when we make idols out of them, which we do, which I do, God says to us that we can't see him, that we're going to miss him. And if we want to have any pattern of life with him, he's going to need to interrupt some of those things. So I've got two points on the back of this first point. Sin has messed us up more than we know. First point is this, be careful making idols. They're not going to save you. Be careful making idols. They're not going to save you. You idolize your partner or your kids or whatever else it is. The kids are going to leave home. I've got that coming. They're going to leave them. How much I big them up and I pour my world into them, they're going to, they're going to shoot off. See you, mom and dad. They're going to do that. Partners aren't perfect. Career's going to come to an end. It's not going to be perfect. These things aren't going to save us. God wants us to know who it is that will save us, and it's not these things. Be careful making idols. Second point is, if, 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 you're, if you're hoping to have a relationship with God, if you're making plans with God, if you want to be in those plans with God, second point is, expect an interruption. See the way that God jumps into this story here. See the way that he marks this story out. You need to expect that God, if, if you want to be in his plans, if you want to have a relationship with him, if you want to go places with him, if you want to respond to his will and his Holy Spirit, because he's perfect, and he wants us to take us towards perfect. And do you know the bitter truth about us? The horrible truth is we're, we're a work in progress. God's going to interrupt at some point. It's not going to be an easy thing. When we make gods out of all these simple things, one of the hardest things to watch, people make gods, and they get these things in their life that they just build up, and God says, I need to take that away, because you're never going to see me. If that continues to be a god in your life, be careful making gods. That's the first point. First one down. Second point, your heart is harder than you know. Even though we experience God's power, we trust ourselves more. Your heart's harder than you know. Even though we experience God's power, we trust yourselves more. Now, time's cracking on, and I'm going to read another big bit, but I want you to really go with it. I want you to stay in it. It's an awesome story about frogs. It's not every day you get to listen to a story about frogs, so just tune in on the back of this story. Then the Lord said, to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. I wonder how long God spent thinking about which gross animal he'd send first to the plagues, frogs. I'll send them frogs, that'll really creep them out. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom, and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials, and onto your people, and into your ovens, into your ovens. This is carefully worded. Just, I think it's just trying to gross you out, isn't it, all the way along? Into your ovens and kneading troughs. 
the frogs will come up onto you and your people and all your, efficient, all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out the hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things. By their secret arts, they also made frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, listen to this, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh wants it done straight away. Tomorrow, Pharaoh says, Moses replied, it will be as you say so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs. Never really dwelt on that. It's quite an unusual prayer, isn't it, to pray about frogs? He had brought out onto Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled up into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said that he would. So all the way through the story of Exodus so far, I don't know if you've noticed, it keeps you in mind of creation. I mean, if you're reading through the Bible, you're not two minutes past generation, uh, past generation, past Genesis anyway. You've read about creation. But the, the author cleverly and subtly keeps, keeps the story of creation in your mind, keeps this idea in your mind that there's a way that God created the earth. God created the earth for human beings to govern the animals. That's one of the principles at the start of creation, right? God says, you're in charge of the animals. You've got power and authority over, over the animals. Be responsible with them and look after them, but you've got the authority. What happens in this story? The order of creation is reversed. You see that? The frogs, the animals go nuts, and they come out of the Nile. When that happens to us, in reality, that is... Has, has that, have you ever had, I'm trying to think, you ever had a wasp in the car? You ever had that? You've got, you can be in a car with like five intelligent adults, you know, all got good, good careers, you know, can use Google Maps, can, you know, progressive people put a bit of nature in the wrong place, and people just go, to, men will scream. You'll hear men scream and panic like mad, and, and, and crouch up in the car like that's going to help. And this wasp is just flying about. I had... I was having a bag of chips. It was the last, the last time we were on a holiday. I was on the beach, and this seagull came down and swooped into my chips, knocked my chips on the floor, and then this other bunch of seagulls just came in, and people just watched, la- laughing at me, just like, he's the guy who's got cut out. That's brilliant. I'm glad it's not me. And the seagulls was like grabbing onto my chips, and I'm, all I could think was, this is wrong. This is, the, I mean, not least because I wanted to eat my chips. I'm a Yorkshireman. I've paid for chips. I want to eat chips. But because... Because nature had gone the wrong way around. I'm, I'm the one who's progressed. I'm the one who knows what he's doing. I've, you know, I've paid for the fish. I've earned the money to pay, pay for the fish. And now you've sweeped in. And I can't fix you. I can't interrupt this. It just feels wrong. And that is the point of this story. Creation, the order of creation is reversed. These frogs are coming out everywhere into the city. And they're running about like mad. And again, like the blood, you think initially, this looks like a random story. This is just frogs everywhere. It's going to annoy you to death. It's not random. 
God, again, is making a point. The Egyptian people made a god of the frogs too. They called it her Hiquit. It was supposed to represent fertility. So they'd see this god and they'd celebrate the fact that they had life and they'd worship these frogs. Think about what is God is saying to a bunch of people who would celebrate frogs and a god like this in such a way. You, you, you put all your hope into this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just... I'm going to turn it all on its head. I'm going to send them out to kill you and drive you mad. Now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to turn to? Now who are you going to, who are you going to look to? They're going to have to think about God. Again, God interrupts them, points to him. Again, what I, what I really want to notice really quickly about this point is the, way that, is the way that Pharaoh deals with God. Notice what he said. Pharaoh pleads for Moses to pray for relief. You see that in the text? He pleads with him. Moses just goes really coolly, you just tell me when. Tell me when to pray, and I'll pray. And Pharaoh is fed up with the frogs. He says, tomorrow. Make it happen tomorrow. Get rid of the frogs tomorrow. And Moses says, so that you'll know that I am the Lord. Remember this verse. It's key to the plagues. So that you will know that I am the Lord, that the Lord is God. I'll do it tomorrow. When, you, when I'll pray tomorrow, and you'll know that it's God. And then notice verse 15. Notice where, where Pharaoh gets to. And just think this stuff through. Think about yourself, thinking about me. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not let the people go. So Pharaoh has this, this, this traumatic frog experience, and he, and he gets Moses to cry out to God, and he sees the miracles of God. He sees what God can do, and in a sense, his thinking has changed. He, he, for a split second, aligns himself with the plans of God. He says, all right, I'll let these people go. He fits into the plans of God. He changes his thinking. Then, when the danger passes, it's like seeing all these frogs go back into the Nile or die. He's like, panic over. I'm going to get back on with building my empire, enjoying the, enjoying the fantastic buildings and everything I've got around him. And he dropped the line of thought that he'd got just for a moment when the trauma had passed. Do you, do you ever do that? Has that been anywhere in your Christian story? Because it's mine. There's been a big, difficult circumstance that's come along. And man, the way that I talk to God in that moment, the way that my prayers are just, I feel like God is like just about there. And I'm hanging on everything that he's telling me. And I'm engrossed in my Bible. And I turn to him with all my heart and all my soul. And then what happens when the terrible thing that you're going through goes away? What do we do? We just drift away back into, well... And we might even freak ourselves out. Sometimes you look back at your life and think, well, that was a bit intense. That was a bit, you know, I'm not sure I needed to go quite to those lengths of reading my Bible and praying to God in quite those, those ways. That's what happens. We drift back. The verse that I really struggled with in the, in the heart of all this, and it's the verse that made me pace the garden all week long. There's a verse in the middle of this text that just throws you, throws you right off the scent. It's, it's chapter 7, verse 3. I will harden, this is God speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And as I'm prepping for all this, I get to this verse, and I think, man, I think everything's going to fall down. If it's God that hardens Pharaoh's heart, what do I tell the people now? I want you to think for a second. I'm going to allow maybe even a moment's awkward silence. What does God do to harden his heart? What does he do? And I'm like, I scratched my head. I walked around the estate. 
And it's right there in the text. God tells him what to do. That's what hardens his heart. He's been, God's been around there for hundreds of years. He's been with the Hebrew people. He's been knocking about. But up until this point, in some respects, he's not spoken to Pharaoh. God opens his mouth to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Our hearts harden when God tells us what to do. Just two points as this sort of idea is floating around in your heads. Thinking about our country. So some stats on our country. That about 50% of people have got an idea that there is something bigger out there. About 30% of people would sort of say that they're Christians, that they might believe directly in a God. And yet, what is the reality of what we know about Christianity and what the church looks like? I think, and it's just me, I think that our nation struggles with a God who tells us what to do. I think for lots of people, God is there. He's floating around, and they quite like him there. They quite like that comfort every now and again. They don't want to, they don't want to rule it out completely, but when he speaks into their life, that becomes a real problem for people. First thing to think about. Second thing to think about, challenge for us all, is to keep our hearts soft. Something I've observed, I'm 39 now, been in the church a long time, but you can see what, what church, what religion can do to people. It can make our hearts hard, can't it? Living out the Christian life with other Christians, they can drive us all mad. It's what happens. The Christian experience for a lot of people can be a really bitter one, and God would say to us, I think, keep your hearts soft towards me. Something to think about. Last point, and we're over the line. God is more awesome than we know, and his power will be seen in unlikely places. So uh, something just to have in the back of your mind. I want to think about how Moses leaves, how he's going to leave, and how he went in. Remember we talked about the staff right at the start. I love that Moses has got the staff. I love that that's what God gives him. Moses is going to walk out of Egypt with, with, all, with all the Hebrew people, and he's going to walk out in what must just feel like the most awesome, triumphant exit of all time. This mass empire are going to cave and are going to crumble, and they're going to, as he leaves, they're going to hand him all their gold and silver and furniture, and they're going to give him everything they've got, and Moses is going to leave like a hero. That's how he's going to leave. Think about how he went in. What has he got with him when he goes in? He's an 82-year-old man who's lost his confidence. He's worried about the words that are going to come out of his mouth. He's got a bit of a stutter. And God's given him, and think about this. God says, I'm going to give you a stick. <laughs> do, you ever have, do you ever have those moments in your life where you're in your house and you're thinking, you've got, you come up with some sort of plan, you're going to go and see somebody, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to take this, and that's going to be the answer to all the problems. And then when you get, when you're faced with the reality of that moment, you're like, what? That that's not a good idea at all. Moses meets God in the desert, and he says, I'm going to give you a stick. See, this, this stick, this is all you need. And I would imagine in that moment, he's like, yeah, I'm confident about this stick. And then when he walks into Egypt, and he walks into the grand splendor of the Egyptian palaces, he's maybe going to look down at this stick and think, man, alive. Just, it's just a stick. That's all I've got. Just got a stick. Then what happens? What happens in the palace? It's the story that we've kind of skipped over a little bit. Moses throws down this stick. And it turns into a snake. And it gobbles up the Egyptian snakes. I don't know if you know anything about Egyptian history, but 
Snakes are a big deal. You see the, the crowns that they wear, they've got a snake on the top. It means that the power and authority is with the guy with the snake on the top of his head. It means, means all the land is his. I've got this. I've got the authority. Moses' snake, God's snake, gobbles up, has all the authority. Moses throws the staff to the ground and the river Nile becomes blood. Moses throws the staff to the ground and flies appear that eat everything up. Moses throws the staff to the ground and locusts appear that corrupt the land. Moses throws the staff to the ground and everybody gets boils. The earth gets dark. Even the firstborn sons die. This humble man, this stuttering old man throws his staff to the ground and God does amazing things. Why is it that way around? So the world will know that it's God who saves. It's not the prince of Egypt that saves the Hebrew people. It's not some young, good-looking lad who's got Egyptian heritage and can come and bring an army in. It's a humble, old man that changes the world around so that people might see God. I wonder what you think. Question to leave you with. What do you think when you see the humble man Jesus placed on a cross? What do you think about that story? When you see the man Jesus with not two pennies to rub together, nowhere to lay his head, no pride in him. What do you see when you see that man on a cross? You know what the Roman guard said when he saw him hung there? Surely this is the son of God. A humble man came, did something ridiculously powerful, and the world got to see God. There's so much of the world out there for us to enjoy and embrace and soak ourselves up in. And I think that God would have it that way. But what God wants for us, what God wants for us in this story is that we might know what it is that saves us. What is the thing that saves us? I would encourage you, if you've never been down that road, or if you're a long way down that road and need to remind yourself, as you see the idols around you, to turn again to God and remember that it's him, it's his interruption that changes things.